Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. Today, I am delighted to be joined by On Tap original co-host Emerita, Sarah Beijung of York University. Sarah, thank you for joining us on the podcast once again. Um, let me begin by wishing both you and Charles Ketchabaugh, our producer, a happy Canada Day weekend. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here back on the podcast. Uh, I've missed you, panel. I've missed you too. I'm not afraid to say it. Um, it's it's really great to have you back. Um, uh, and I will tag this uh, mini introduction by saying that I had the pleasure of being in Canada Day in Canada for Canada Day just at the beginning. I, I just completed a an amazing week in your fair country, uh, taking the Via Rail from Toronto all the way to Vancouver. Um, seeing the Canadian Rockies, seeing the plains, seeing the prairies, uh, adding an extra day in those two magnificent cities. And so I was in Vancouver uh, for actual Canada Day, which any Canadian will tell you when you ask is Canada's birthday. Um, so I, my, my heart, my mind, um, my imagination is full of Canadian things, and it feels very appropriate to come back and um, record with you. Well, I, again, really happy to be here and, and glad you had a good visit. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Um, so Sarah has blessed us with a return appearance on the podcast for a special episode dedicated to the intersection of choreography and emerging technology focalized and rendered into uh, charismatic physical form by our special guest, Sydney Skybetter of Brown University. Sydney, welcome to On Tap. Thank you so much, panel. It is uh, delightful to see you, even though I have aged 10,000 years since we saw each other last. <laughs> likewise, man. Likewise. Um, uh, we'll get into that interval very shortly. And, and on the podcast, we don't dwell much on professional titles, but I am very happy, uh, partly because of my connection to your uh, home university, Brown University, I'm very happy to introduce you as Associate Professor Sydney Skybetter. Um, and I would very much like to congratulate you on your recent promotion. Thank you so much. That is a thing that happened. Yeah, it's it's fantastic and and great news for for Brown um, uh, theater arts and performance studies. Um, so Sydney <coughs> is associate professor of dance and deputy dean of the college at Brown University. He will certainly be known to longtime listeners of this podcast as the convener of the conference for research on choreographic interfaces, also known as Circe, which which since 2015 has been a lively space for the exchange of ideas and creative endeavors at the meeting point of choreography, performance broadly conceived, and um, uh, emergent computational technology. Our old episodes uh, 30 and 39 were, uh, in my opinion, some of our best and most pleasurable to record. They were done live at meetings of Circe. Um, this year, Sydney and the Circe team are set to reveal a new project, Dances with Robots, which, in short, is a podcast. Sarah and I have listened to a couple of pre-release episodes. We are really excited to interview Sydney about this new way of opening up the conversation. For the episode uh, we're recording today, we also read the introduction to Anna Watkins Fisher's influential 2020 book, The Play in the System, 
the art of parasitical resistance, which has become, I, I think, something of a touchstone of conversation in Sydney's uh, discussions with artists who are negotiating their engagements with the massive enterprises that are producing emerging technology. So we are going to tease out um, some of what it means to cozy up to big tech for artists. Uh, also, in keeping with the Circe approach to these weighty and um, uh, stimulating matters, we watched a cinematic representation in which an encounter with technological singularity somehow involves theatricality and really dance specifically. That is, we watched Ex Machina, the 2014 film written and directed by Alex Garland, starring uh, Domhnall Gleeson, Alicia Vikander, and Oscar Isaac. Before we launch into those topics and and get inside Sydney's head, um, I would like to say that I am recording in my office at WashU in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miseria tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. I would like to acknowledge this history and also thank the Buddha Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. And I, as always, encourage listeners to learn more about the territory where they live. And please feel free to visit the land acknowledgement page on our website, ontappod.com, to learn more. So first, Dances with Robots. Sydney, you and executive producer Ariane Michaud and your team have something very exciting still under wraps, right, but set to be revealed. This is a, a new podcast that covers much of what you've been bringing people together to discuss at Circe. There are so many things that I and I'm sure Sarah want to ask you regard, about regarding Dances with Robots, but um, let me start with this uh, for our listeners. The last time I saw you in person, as you alluded to, um, uh, was very memorably the very beginning of March 2020, when the COVID pandemic was first breaking into public consciousness in the U.S. and uh, worldwide, right as Circe was convening. Um, so forgive me for this question, but I wonder if you could walk us through how Dances with Robots, this project, emerged, was conceived and developed during that interval. Yeah. Well, first, uh, let me say what a, a pleasure it is to be uh, zooming in with you fine nerds. Uh, I'm coming at you live from unceded Narragansett territory uh, on the um, supposed property of Brown University. It is a real pleasure to be with you, um, if only because I've been such an incredible fan person of y'all's work for so many years. And I, I know I've said this to you before, but uh, in many ways, I feel like I, I came to understand what it means to exist in performance studies community and in a performance studies department by your example and through this podcast. So I just want to start by saying thank you. Um, it's true. March 2020 was kind of a thing um, that happened and continues to be happening and playing out. Um, so we, we had uh, our, I think it was our, our seventh annual convening um, here at Brown. Um, and we knew it was going to be kind of a, 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 a memorable occasion, if only because many of our West Coast partners were all told by their uh, cor corporate overlords that they were not permitted to travel um, to the East Coast or anywhere. And so a number of our participants were just not able to join us at all. Um, and so we had to kind of jury rig a kind of a hybrid convening environment, which is now very uh, perhaps common. Um, but 
it was a, a moment where uh, very viscerally I, I started thinking about like what it meant to hold community uh, together relative to questions of technologic futurity and surveillance, care and concern. Um, these are all topics I'm sure we'll get into uh, uh, in a few minutes. But um, I have to say that this podcast, Dances with Robots, was very much the uh, brainchild, as it were, of Ariane, our executive uh, producer, um, who for many years has been trying to think about like what it means to be foregrounding, yes, care, but also ecological concern while hosting notionally in uh, international convening. It's challenging to balance this, these ethical kind of twains, right? Um, and so Ariane's idea was like, well, what, what happens if we think about community formation through the lens of a podcast? Um, and of course, this is something that ONTAP has been very successfully doing for many years and that I've benefited from and am very much a fan of. Um, so we, we applied for some support from the uh, the Sloan Foundation to uh, create a podcast, Dances with Robots, that explored the uh, collision of, of bodies in emerging computational and surveillance systems uh, with an eye towards robots uh, specifically, but certainly um, as uh, the, the film Ex Machina uh, demonstrates, there's, it's very difficult to uh, disaggregate questions of artificial intelligence and robotic embodiments. Um, these are very plural and prismatic uh, platforms that we uh, aim to study. Um, in any event, the, the, the podcast was our, our first gesture towards uh, a distributed means of understanding the complexity of this phenomena. Um, we're not obviously the first uh, to do this, but um, our, our hope, uh, our, our uniqueness, our special niche maybe, um, was not only to focus on embodiment, but on choreographic practice specifically. Um, so this is uh, a, a way of understanding how it is that bodies move with intention, uh, with uh, significance, um, how they're understood by an audience of people, but also increasingly by machines. Um, choreography uh, and choreographic concern are central to this podcast, even as more broadly we're thinking about, yes, bodies and computation. Uh, choreographic uh, practice is really the thing that bridges those two things. Does that make sense? How yes. am I doing? <laughs> Oh, fantastic! Great. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, in in a way, it's it's a it's an extension of what Circe has been, but it is um, using the you know the platform of podcasting to to distribute to a broader audience. Um, do you feel like the the sort of guiding questions of the podcast are identical to what brought you together initially for Circe, or has it evolved? And I'll just say that part, partly that question is, is in response to the first episode, which you shared a, a, a cut of with us, which, which tells the story of how Circe itself began. Do you feel like the questions that you're asking now that you're interested in now are pretty much the same as what you started with? And if not, how have they evolved? Yeah, I think... I think broadly they're the same. Like we're still dealing with uh, questions of, of surveillance and capitalism. We're still uh, wondering what it means to be implicated, uh, always already within this larger superstructure of um, you know corporate enterprise that is seeking to understand our bodies continuously. Um, I think where where it's gotten more narrow or maybe more refined um, is at the level of uh, of coalition. Um, or uh, community, maybe more broadly, you know, where we're definitely thinking increasingly towards action and intervention. Um, and on the uh, on the note of, of coalition and indeed labor, I, I need to um, highlight uh, the incredible work of our archivist Kate Gao, our consulting producer Kevin Clark, um, the the team of um, a dozen staff people here at uh, Brown, um, Megan, uh, Jim. Like, there's so many people that this podcast is representing um, in terms of uh, expertise in labor, and I, I want to be sure to foreground that. Um, this question of what is to be done 
perhaps is more kind of crystallized in my mind uh, a decade ago when we started this initiative. Um, it was kind of like, is this a thing? Like, is choreography or dance like a useful way into these conversations? Um, and the short answer has been now, yes, it is useful. And yes, it is interesting. And yes, it requires some uh, contextualization. But uh, it has proven very productive um, as a means of, of focusing uh, conversations and articulating action. Um, but this brings us to a, a bit of a quandary, uh, which is, you know, what is the value of any action given the nature of the superstructure we occupy? Um, and whether that's talking about capitalism or corporate collaboration or the university, uh, the many universities that we uh, ourselves occupy and, and collaborate within, um, I have a lot of um, very raw questions about like what it means to do resistive work housed within the institutions we occupy. I, I was really fascinated by that first um, episode and the way that the precarity that dancers and choreographers felt in that moment was one of the major impulses that led you to engage with these questions and engage with the people working in these um, uh, companies that are developing tech. I, I don't want to spoil anything for our listeners, but it involves a a poorly designed smoke detector. Um, Sarah, I, I'm really curious to know your thoughts. I know that you have a you know long history collaborating with Sydney, working with Circe. Um, uh, what was it like for you listening to these episodes? Did it make you? I don't know. How did it? How did it change or or, or deepen the way you think about what Circe has been? What's what Sydney's up to? Um. Well, I, I just want to, first of all, commend you, Sydney, for, for keeping Circe going under the circumstances, not just of the pandemic, but, you know, those kinds of enterprises and large multidisciplinary gatherings are always, I think, really challenging. But Circe in particular has been just extraordinarily useful, and it's a it's a great model. And for folks who, who haven't had the chance to attend, the way I've always described it is it's it's dancers, academics, and technologists, and and you can absolutely, maybe appropriate for a conference on choreography, you can tell who each group is mostly represented by by how they move through space, right? <laughs> so there's there's like these incredibly live folks, you know, doing splits in the hallways with you know a bunch of um, slightly more uh, you know awkward folks that are differentiated mostly by like the quality of their technology that they're bringing along with them, and. But one of the things I really loved about about the conference that I feel like translates really well into the podcast are the lightning rounds and those lightning talks, these like very short, very provocative um, uh, sort of missives from different parts of those of those three fields, also allowing for the fact that, you know, there are people like, you know, Katie Cohen, who, you know, represents all three at once. So so, you know, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. But those those short Short talks, I think, have been incredibly productive, and the podcast seems to me to be a, a great opportunity to echo similarly kind of short ideas and then and then expound them. I guess my question for you, Sydney, as you're as you're having these conversations in in different formats, you know, do you notice a difference in the in the in the quality? Maybe not the not in like an assessment of good or bad, but the but the nature of the conversations now that you they are in a 
exclusively mediated or largely mediated uh, kind of context. And, and I guess my other question is, how are you structuring those conversations? Are they via Zoom? Are they in person? And how is that changing the dynamics of the conversations that you're having? Um, well, first, uh, Sarah, thank you for your uh, downright charitable narration of, of how CRC uh, functions and has existed uh, heretofore. Um, I'm really grateful for that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say one of the producerial challenges of the CRC convening from the beginning was to create or foster space where, uh, you know, the, the embodiment nerds and the scholarly nerds and the technical nerds could exist on increasingly or ever increasingly equal footing, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, I'm sure we've all been to that conference where there's like a token dancer or, you know, any number of like conversations around STEM to STEAM. This is one of, uh, this really grinds my gears, right? Where like you invite a dancer or something into a technical environment and the dancer, like their dancerly knowledge is extracted, you know, directly from their brain into the engineer's brains. And then the engineers like make a robot dancer, whatever. And then the dancer is underpaid and asked to leave. Thank you very much. And we call it collaboration. Anyway. Um, I've been in that room myself many times, and CRC in some respects was a response to that kind of ex extractive uh, uh, way of working, wave laboring. Um, and we've, we've tried again with um, Kevin and Ariane and Kiri Miller's um, guidance to think about facilitative structures that allow uh, dancers and technologists and scholars and critics to cohabitate space and share their expertise on, again, ever, uh, ever more equal footing. Mm -hmm. um, and so this for the podcast um, has also turned turned into a, a challenge, not only in terms of um, like audio production, but indeed of storytelling. Like, how is it that we narrate how uh, a, a dancer or dance performer's expertise um, is as valid and interesting as a technologist or what have you, when we have been a culture a culture to think that like you know dancers are uh, uh, you know uh, uh, sex objects or robots maybe, and uh, technologists are uh, revered and uh, vaunted. Um, what this means is that we, we have been attempting with as much care as is possible for first time podcasters um, to structure these conversations um, in, in a way that allows, uh, not just allows uh, every individual's expertise to shine, but that we it is our job to put that expertise into context. And so we've been thinking very carefully about what it means to narrate individuals' careers uh, relative to one another. Um, this means that there we include and then seek to contextualize like a lot of bio data. Um, like what does it mean, for example, that uh, Katie Quant starts as a data scientist and then goes into choreography and then goes back into robotics? Like this is a kind of uh, an archipelago of professional expertise um, that is very much not the norm either in uh, technical circles or in performance circles. And so we, we have to uh, situate that with great care. And so as um, as a, we're producing this podcast, um, Arian in particular is thinking very, very uh, carefully about like what it means to tell these people's stories or to be in relation to these people's stories. I noted that in the episodes that you shared with us that they're, first of all, they're exceedingly well produced and you didn't share final versions, but what I listened to sounded so good and so compelling. It, it really, I really didn't want to stop listening, but it was it partly given my experience with Circe, which was, um, you know, the, the ones that I went to very well planned, but with, in my mind, a kind of ethos of let's put these people in a room together see a whole bunch of different types of things, get some conversation starting, and, and the the end or the goal is fairly open-ended. This was not a completely, these were not like super improvised or open-ended recordings. These are, you know, planned, 
uh, in some partly written out in advance um, um, with some great interviews. How did you come to the decision to do something that has that kind of structure to it and that sort of planning? If I'm right, you're going to release this season all at once. Is that right? On the model right. of some of the, you know, um, uh, big podcast producers who are, you know, develop, putting, spending a lot of time in developing, finishing the product and then putting it out there. How did you come to the decision yeah. to do that? Um, I just saw what The Bear season two did and then tried to do that, mostly. <laughs> Um, it's a very narrow window it's, of a joke. <laughs> it's that it's that good, huh? It's that I, good. I guess I'll, That's right. I guess I'll have to watch it. Yeah. Um, thank you, and you're welcome. Um, no, I, you know, I think the the approach has been largely, you know, trial and error with an emphasis on error. Uh, you know, the, the first uh, episode or two that we shared, that, that those are like the six and seven point of those uh, those episodes. Um, you know, we initially tried again on sort of an on tappy kind of model to like be uh, almost entirely unscripted uh, and just sort of see how these various interviews like collided with one another. And then we realized for this particular intervention, like we needed more context and care. And then we tried to script everything because what uh, demonstrates care, like exhaustively writing out every nuance and detail, but then we listened to it and put ourselves to sleep because it was terrible. And so we, we've been trying to find different ways of, of um, bringing these stories into relation with one another, but also acknowledging that like, Across all of the episodes, the 12 or 13 that we're going to be releasing, uh, he said, fingers crossed, uh, at the end of August, um, we needed multiple modalities uh, of, of telling these stories and bringing these interviews into relation. And so um, we have something like four or five different ways of producing these podcasts um, that we're going to be trying out. So season one is very much... Um, uh, a, a way of exploring it. I don't want to say beta testing exactly, but that, that's kind of tacit. We're trying to figure out how best to do this. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that, that maybe speaks to the broader ethos of the thing. Uh, you know, we are doing our best um, to do the individuals and the thematics uh, at, uh, in discussion uh, justice, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, a prodigious learning opportunity, uh, but also one that we very much uh, need to continue to learn from. What's right. your hope for the podcast, Sydney? Like, if it's like, like if it's like success beyond your wildest dreams, what is it? What does that look like? One of the limits of the CRC producing model for the conference was that it was always functionally invitation only, right? It was like very narrowly coalitional across very specific, usually elite universities. Um, it was always a very kind of like um, myopic. Uh, aperture into the communities of concern that are actually doing work and are affected by uh, computation and surveillance. Um, success for me looks like the radical explosion of the coalition involved here. Um, I think we are going to be looking for ways of being in, uh, being of support and being in relation to other communities, the many communities of practice who are working and organizing around these kinds of questions. Um, we don't know yet what it means for Circe to be part of that larger coalitional effort. Um, but our hope here is to be uh, is not to imagine us as doing something like new or some novel intervention, um, but rather to be of support to the the folks um, here. I'm thinking of Joy Bolamwini and Ruha Benjamin uh, and all all of the nerds who have been at this for years. Um, I want to figure out how this podcast and the CRC effort more broadly can be of service and support to them. So. One of the things that I think is really remarkable about Circe um, and which is evident in the podcast, the, the portions of the podcast that we've been fortunate enough to listen to, is that you quickly zero in on some of the, you know, 
the real and candid um, issues that I think artists and, and all of these collaborators are facing when they are in a room and potentially in collaboration with um, big institutions, um, universities or, you know, capital driven profit seeking companies that are trying to create new inventions um, to pursue their mission. And in, you know, you can, you can sense that I'm getting us towards a transition into our second topic, but um, as an example, in the, the episode that you, one of the episodes you shared with us, you interviewed um, the MIT professor John Underkoffler, who is uh, primarily responsible for the, um, uh, I think it's G-Speak, uh, a gestural computer interface application, which is highlighted beautifully in the Steven Spielberg, Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, um, which we screened and, and watched in a delightful moment at one of the series I was at. Um, but there's this sort of jaw-dropping moment in that podcast, for me at least, where you hear the story. It's fascinating. He was interested in holograms. He was developing holograms. He, he sort of shifted into... Um, at, in his research at MIT, coming up with alternatives to mouse and keyboard interfaces, um, gets the call, works on, you know, works on Minority Report, works with Tom Cruise. It's amazing. And then after the movie comes out, uh, uh, companies, corporations start to call and they're interested in if this can be commercially viable. And uh, one of those companies, in fact, the one that apparently, you know, first led to a serious collaboration was the uh, weapon system and guided missile manufacturer Raytheon. <laughs> so at least for me, listening to that, I, you know, I'm thinking... Oh my God! Like, what, <laughs> what was their alarm? Like, what is the, what are the moral perils that happen when artists, academics, intellectuals, inventors, technologists, um, start to explore in open-ended ways what they might come up with when they are working with companies that include, uh, you know, it's not just weapons manufacturers, but a lot of the applications for these things could go in many different directions. Um, it's one of those moments that I just, I, my, I think my jaw sort of hit the floor listening to him talk about that. Yeah. Um, uh, but I guess the question that I have, and we'll, you know, move quickly into um, talking about a parasitic resistance is what for you does that story demonstrate? The story that you know, this professor working on these emerging technologies makes this film and then begins to collaborate with Raytheon. What does that raise for you? What do you hope it'll raise for listeners in their minds? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say for myself, it, it suggests that the specter of violence is never far away from this kind of computational or embodied concern. And, you know, there, there are stakes to this work that given the kind of goofy quality of it's like dancing and robots like it's it's goofy it's it's openly ridiculous and i embrace that uh the goofitude um but what undercoffler's story says to me is that uh you know creative practices of of course not and has never been politically neutral and the co-optation of artist artistic labor um is a, 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 a i was just at disneyland so this is fresh on my it's a tale as old as time right um and and so how artists contend with those implications and contend with the stakes of uh, their labor being applied in ways that not only do they not necessarily consent to, but can't even be imagined at the time the labor is being performed. Like that, that keeps me up at night. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm a choreographer. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm an artist by training. This is my expertise. And um, increasingly, it is my job 
to liaise with everybody from uh, you know, military adjacent robotics companies to defense contractors to any number of, of teams working on projects that have uh, real and severe embodied stakes, largely for folks of color, largely transnationally. And how I relate to those, I, I, there was no ethics class in my MFA in dance performance and postmodern contact improvisation uh, junk. Like I, I didn't take a class in this, right? Like I have no training uh, in how to think through this. And this is functionally where um, I, I'm going to kind of lean into your segue here, panel. Um, like Anna Watkins Fisher's uh, magisterial text, The Play in the System, has provided uh, an incredibly useful uh, kind of moral compass. Um, I don't want I don't, I don't want to steal the transition from you, though. I think you you. You, I left it hanging out there. I was practically begging, you know, to be to be pickpocketed in that sure, way. Sure. Um, but let's talk about parasitical resistance. So we we read um, the the beginning of Anna Watkins Fisher's uh, fantastic book, uh, The Play in the System. Um, I think that encounter between um, Underkoffler and Raytheon is a perfect way of of sort of. Uh, serving this up. Fisher examines in this book several distinct instances in which artists enter into morally ambiguous relationships with powerful institutions or individuals, allowing them to, and I'm quoting here, transform their complicity with hegemonic structures into a counterintuitive resource for undermining them in plain sight. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really curious to know um, more about what uh, Sarah, especially you think, and 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 Sydney, of course, what how this concept sort of um, can be useful to artists and intellectuals um, wading into this terrain. Um, but I'll start with a question for Sydney, which is, how is it that Fisher's book and this concept uh, how did it how does it appear in Dances with Robots? Um, and I'll just ask the straightforward question: Do you think this is a salient? concept for understanding what dancers and choreographers have to do when they conceive of their relationships with these tech giants. Yeah, absolutely. Hard yes, panel. Yes, I do. I agree. Um, maybe that wasn't maybe that wasn't as hard of hard of a question hard. as no. I thought it was. Uh, yes, the answer is yes. Next question. Uh, no, I mean, so, so what what uh, Fisher's book puts into relief for me is that you know, dancers, choreographers, but uh, of course, artists uh, and cultural workers more broadly have been contending with these power structures, of course, for centuries and forever and ever, amen, right? So like the, the ways that the Medici's functioned is not so distinct uh, in terms of capital flows um, and what we're seeing in terms of Google's, you know, ar uh, artistic commissioning or whatever. Um, these are still artists who are precarious definitionally and who require um, these outside entities, um, the, the benefits, the, the, uh, the, the, they require good natured and goodwill um, from these uh, actors uh, and uh, they, uh, anger them to their own peril, right? Um, this is how how the dance field, anyway, has been structured literally for centuries, at least in the Western tradition. Um, but in terms of the Dances with Robots podcast, uh, you know, I'll say that you know the Circe Enterprise itself started as a bit of a goof, right? Like we we basically took um, some artistic grant money from like the Rhode Island State Council for the Arts and a little bit from uh, Brown and turned it into beer money, um, and we called it a conference. And it is a couple like it's 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 serious it's rigorous right like we, we strive towards excellence and like all of the stuff but like it w was initially a little bit of, of seeing literally how much we could how much money we could extract from brown as a system and turn that into beer and beer into discourse i, I think is the rough uh, order of operations there um uh, and, and to a certain extent circe has always functioned in this kind of adjacent mode 
to Brown. Like we've always been like just outside of official Brown proceedings. Um, I have always been uh, until July 1st when I became tenured and October of last year when I became a dean, uh, you know, fairly like uh, glancingly outside, inside, but also outside of the institution, like my own role and positionality within the institution has always been a little fluxish. Um, but the podcast comes at a, a really curious time when Brown is very interested in interdisciplinary creative and technical technologically forward practice. Um, it has uh, granted me tenure. Um, we are uh, potentially putting Ariane into a full-time staff position here at Brown. Um, and there's an open question uh, within the team of like, well, what, what does it mean to um, be resistive, to take these kind of parasitical modes uh, seriously? when we are also being literally absorbed, not to say co-opted, by the university that we have siphoned resources from for years. Mm-hmm. Um, put it, you know, taking that more broadly, you know, one of the ways that this is inflected in the podcast is that we're trying to narrate this tension um, as part of the story of Circe. Like we're not trying to suggest that we are resolved somehow uh, in our stance or position relative to the university. I am very much the opposite of resolved. Um, I'm quite deeply uncomfortable with um, being uh, absorbed or being named under somebody else's institutional goodwill. And yet this is the push me pull you um, of our, our resourcing and um, the funding that we use to uh, conduct these interviews, the ways that we tell these stories necessarily exists in relation to um, the beneficence of the institution that enables and indeed permits the podcast to occur. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll say there is that almost all of the artists and technologists that we uh, interview and are talking about, like they operate within these corporate and institutional superstructures that they are almost exhaustively ambivalent about. Um, there are very few people that we talk to that are like, oh yeah, I feel totally resolved to morally exist in this corporate environment. Like the, the ambivalence is pervasive. Um, the question that we have for these folks, and this is a leitmotif that's gonna carry through all of the episodes, um, is, is how do you reach an individual resolve given how you're situated within the corporate and institutional structures? Um, this is, is, I think, the great beauty of, of Fisher's text is that it, it, it she says functionally, that there is no such thing as being comfortable here. Like I, I, I for one, have like flagellated myself for years being like, ah, oh, I wish I had some kind of morally pure space to occupy where I didn't have to participate in things I find abhorrent. And it turns out that's impossible. Uh, Fisher says there's nothing outside of capitalism. There's no way to um, somehow be outside military industrial um, implication. Her question, I think, and this is profoundly galvanizing for us in the podcast, is what do you do with that implication? What does implication permit uh, that is not afforded by non-participation? What can you do with your implication? I I think that point is is so well taken, and there, she's not the first to make it. But I think it's um, sometimes that's kind of where the the discourse ends, or you know, kind of terminates in a in a weird way. Um, it's useful to remember that all of the technologies <clears throat> that are undergird our digital communications and lives, all of which originated in the context of war, like every last one of them. And so whether you're using a personal computer or playing a video game, you are benefiting from from that history. And particularly in the United States, most of the research funding also comes not just from the U.S. government, but the vast majority on technology comes from DARPA. Like that's where the real, you know, grant money is. So how do you navigate those? And I think I think what 
what what Fisher's book does is to kind of rather than end up in that point, which is where a number of other really important, really uh, wonderful works have gone, is it takes that as its jumping off point and looks at the ways in which the military industrial complex has been woven into contemporary capitalism, has been woven into not just digital affordances, but digital necessities. You know, there used to be a time uh, when you when you could afford not to have a smartphone. And now, I think in the next few years, five to 10 years, privilege and luxury will be not having a smartphone um, and that the necessity will be for the rest of us. And so what, is it, what does it look like when now you're, you're compelled? Or another example, I mean, one of the earlier examples that she cites is the, uh, is the critique of Amazon and the sort of undermining of the, of, of, and drawing out the Amazon's hypocrisy of, of openness. It's sort of pretense or performance of openness and using that against the company in an, in an art project. Um, but what you see in a very real way is that, I mean, lots of people say, I'm trying not to buy things on Amazon. And yet you realize how few things are available that are not on Amazon and how much of what you need is now only available in Amazon or something equivalent. And so when I think about your work with with choreography and, and what the way it plays out in, 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 in Fisher's book is also just this ways in which technology is rarely, it's rarely about what we do with it and mostly about what, how it reconditions and re-choreographs and redesigns our lives and how contemporary life is now often us chasing how to be better subjects to technological systems. Better subjects, indeed. I, you know, I, the she writes about. Um, talk, she defines parasitism, at least in part, as the performance of social acquiescence under coercion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about this a lot. Um, so, like one, one of the subjects of, of the the podcast, um, both explicitly and tacitly, is uh, the company Boston Dynamics, um, which is a um, uh, uh, an MIT spun, uh, uh, spinoff funded initially by indeed DARPA. Um, founded by uh, uh, the um, uh, Mark Raybird. Um, and I, I have existed in necessary relation to Raybird and Boston Dynamics, as well as their new Artificial Intelligence Institute, which we can talk about time permitting. Um, but functionally, as a function of my research and expertise in uh, <laughs> the dancing murder robots, um, you know, they have asked me to be an advisor to the Boston Dynamics AI Institute. And I feel like I have to say yes. I feel like I have to be, um, in, in order to continue my teaching, my research, um, which increasingly looks like dance performance with robots, I feel like I have to exist in, in a pleasant social relation to this uh, institute, which um, is uh, a sister corporation to Boston Dynamics, the mothership, which produces robots, which, yes, are general purpose in the kind of classic dual UC session, uh, uh, sense of the, for, the phrase. Um, they are used, yes, in like mining, safety, and whatever, but also uh, have been engaged by like the you know, New York Police Department to um, surveil largely communities of color. Um, my, I am being drawn in to these systems, and, and on some level, willingly. Like, I think it's my job, he said rationalizingly, to be uh, at this, uh, in these rooms and to narrate their goings-ons. But I'm also mindful, especially as this podcast is coming out, that like there's going to be a non-disclosure agreement attached 
to my advisory work with them. And for me to work in or increasingly within these systems requires that I mute myself and ideally support others' critiques. Hmm. These are these are really interesting issues. Um, we're getting right to the heart of, of some of these matters. And I just want to, I, I don't know that we can, we really have time to get into these things in a systematic way that they would deserve. But, but um, Sarah, you know, the points you bring up, uh, Sydney, what you talk about in terms of Boston Dynamics, which of course is on, I think, on a lot of people's minds as they listen to these discussions. It occurs to me that there's different types of relationships one can posit. There is the sense that, you know, uh, me, a, you know, a professor at a university that's received, I'm speaking of myself, panel camp, <laughs> um, but I know my, my uh, this condition is not unique. I'm at a university that pays my salary, allows me to research what I want, teach what I want, and the money comes from some sources that I'm not happy about. Or, you know, Sarah, to sort of follow along the themes that you were developing, the sense that one could hold oneself in a kind of romantic, pure relationship apart from technologies and not want to be contaminated through their own life by making use of tools that may have originated as uh, weapons of war or applications in those types of research rooms. Um, that, I think, that point I take very, uh, I think it's very smart and that we shouldn't, you know, kid ourselves into thinking that we can be, uh, you know, hold ourselves apart from uh, increasingly technologically mediated and controlled world. Um, the the, I think that that might be distinct from the question that Sidney is sort of contemplating in his present situation, which is, do I dedicate my creativity, my intellectual work, my talent to a project that the outcome of which I can't really control and which it's easy to imagine outcomes that are that I would reject personally, that I wouldn't want to be associated with. Right. And, and my question, I'll turn this into a question um, as best I can, is that I, I wonder if those two relationships are distinct from the particular thing that Fisher delineates in a parasitical relationship, which is the, the way an artist sets themselves up as a parasite to a host. In, the, in those two examples in the introduction, the Amazon noir, where um, uh, an artist created an algorithm that would basically bypass and hack Amazon's preview feature to assemble whole copies of copyrighted material and then give them away. Um, uh, and in other examples, it seems as though the initial relationship is one of, I'm an independent artist doing my own thing, but I'm going to exploit the way this other entity presents itself as open and as hospitable, and I'm going to do something to it that allows me to, within a very limited and constrained way, um, practice some artistic agency and mess with this thing, undermine it, work from within it, right? Um, I guess the, the, that relationship is something I could imagine, you know, I could, you could imagine having parasitical resistance as your credo going into this, Sydney, and say, I'm going to be in this room and I'm going to make some things and I'm going to say some things, but I'm going to try to not be utterly evacuated in terms of my own moral agency. Um, I don't know. I, I guess the question is, are, are there sort of distinct ways that um, these different relationships individuals, creative people have with technology? Um, are there things, are there relationships that aren't parasitical? Are we, are they, are, is your relationship always necessarily parasitical or are there other ways of acting? I don't know if that's a super 
clear and, and generous question, but um, it occurs to me that some different relationships are being articulated and that some of them seem parasitical and some of them not so much. I think a lot of it comes down to visibility. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that they are so distinct. I mean, I won't presume to speak for Sydney and his experience and participation and collaboration with Boston Dynamics, but um, you know, if we go back to, to Fisher's book, I mean, a lot of what she describes, especially in sort of the, uh, the history of the word parasite, it, it, it sounds a lot like cultural capital. It's a phrase she uses a few times in the book, although I don't believe she cites Bordeaux, but, but it's that notion of, you know, what allows the artist to sit in a space that they don't belong and, and what do they bring to power that allows them to be, you know, again, parasito next to the food, right? And taking advantage of the resources to which they have no direct claim, either through overt labor or through exercises or positions of power and privilege. And, and what I think is, is really interesting about the book from a theater and performance studies perspective is how layered conceptual performance practices are in it and how akin those are to digital practices. And so the ways in which those marry together uh, almost effortlessly, and certainly in contemporary digital culture, but also thinking about the examples that one could draw out for theatrical exam through theatrical version. So for example, you know, like she was a, a, in the cohort with um, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and there's clear, although she doesn't name it, you can see resonances that show up in an octoroon, right? The idea of a parasitical performance that requires a certain kind of audience to be in the room for that production to make sense or to cite another somewhat similar example in Fairview, uh, you know, Jackie Siebel's Drury's play, there's been a critique that that's a play about black performance and white supremacy that paradoxically or somewhat ironically requires a, a white audience to make sense. And so one could look at those as perhaps examples of parasitic theater. And, and you know, it was only when I was reading through the acknowledgments that realizing that Anna Watkins Fisher and Brandon Jacob Jenkins were actually MA uh, cohort mates at NYU. And so, and then of course the, the, the other piece that comes on is um, Jose Munoz's disidentifications and the way in which she draws on that so richly to, to work through these. these. And, and again, the, the major quote for me um, uh, is, is that the parasite is not separate from the host systems it attacks. It represents an ethically and politically complex model of non-oppositional resistance. And that, I think, in the, in the context of digital culture, given the necessity of our reliance on these systems and their histories and origins and the inextractability of, those, of, of technologies from those histories and as well as contemporary uh, malevolent surveillance extractive practices, that, that one could say, like, well, but the parasite makes a different kind of uh, relation visible. So it's not, there's a, there's a wonderful kind of figure where she talks about like, she, there's like an image of like a cat eating a mouse and that the, the, the host, i.e. the cat, absorbs and dissolves the DNA of, uh, of the subject, right? The mouse disappears. But a parasite in the mouse 
animates the mouse in a particular way. And, and if we think about, you know, the, the Last of Us video game and narrative serial, we can also see how this wraps around to the notions of choreography, which is that a parasite doesn't just feed on and extract from a host, it also changes a host's choreography and a host's behavior um, and the way a host moves in the world. The degree, I think, of political resistance or this idea of non-oppositional resistance is in some ways the degree to which the artist is able to make that visible and salient for what it is. And that's why I think one of the things that, that Fisher talks a lot about in the book is that the artwork that she discusses is distasteful, is messy, is problematic, uh, to use a very overused phrase, is, um, I think she, the word she uses is like, it's not palatable. Right. It's not things that you want to agree with and and precisely. But that's exactly what it what it needs in order to make it uh, to make it visible. And and perhaps I think the the the, you know, the biggest thing for me that I was sort of reading through is is that is that wonderful story about the, you know, the scorpion and the frog. Right. Which is that the, the scorpion is in that in that relationship, uh, the parasite. And um, but that when the when the scorpion does what's in its nature and, and stings the frog, everything goes down. And so there's a very kind of precarious, tenuous, uh, high stakes relationship that's being worked out. And it's precisely by making those stakes visible and the violence, the histories of violence, but also the contemporary violence practices like that, where it, that's where it seems to me to be the real power of it. Um, I will just say my final thought on, on a, a book that I really, really loved and, and spent more time reading than I probably should have um, uh, all the way through is I really recommend readers read The Coda because it is very rarely that you get an author who gets the subject of their critical analysis to push back uh, against and, and with them in such a palpable and direct way. And I think like more power to to uh, to Fisher for really robustly engaging with that and foregrounding that and working through that. And so it's it's just a fascinating example and and critique of the ways in which scholarly criticism is also involved in a kind of robust parasitical relationship in which we are, you know, trying to keep our, you know, artistic hosts alive, but but for extractive purposes, and what happens when they start extracting and feeding on us, and the, and it's just a kind of marvelous, uh, really wonderful, wonderful working through of all those implications. So it's it's a, it, but a super enjoyable book. Really, I, I, I that's where, the, the coda is where I feel the Munoz the most. Hundred you know, percent. You know, and and also, and she she brings uh, Jose in right at the very beginning of the introduction, right? Um, this uh, disidentifications and the working on with and against. And, and panel, going back to your question, like this is, I don't want to schematize this, right? But like how I or artists understand their work in relation uh, to these corporate actors or otherwise uh, on, working on, with, and against is just, I, I think, a very a profound and, and productive way of thinking through um, what Sarah's, I think, very correctly uh, representing as being irresolvable. Yeah, I, I, we, we, I want to move on uh, to the next topic, but I will tag this by saying I 
I can't recommend Fisher's book uh, highly enough. I think it's first in terms of helping, and I've been aware for, of it for a while. And I actually uh, know Anna from graduate school. Um, so, Anna, if you end up listening to this, I'm sorry it took me so long to read your brilliant book. Um, but speaking for myself as someone who has been preoccupied of late with the what I'm calling the activist orientation of the field of performance studies and the ways that sometimes the in my mind, the, our um, signaling of our intents to be revolutionary, to be oppositional, do not necessarily match up with what I think the, um, uh, the I don't know, intellectual prehistory or conditions of the field are. I, I find Fisher's book to be a really honest, really illuminating examination of, of the ways that um, scholarly and artistic resistance and activism uh, might be honestly <laughs> and clearly um, uh, conceptualized for the future. Um, but enough of that. Let's talk about dancing murder robots. We watched Ex Machina. Um, in my, you know, we I, I was uh, uh, lucky to read a copy of a talk that Sydney has been giving um, at various locations that features another dancing murder robot on cinema, um, Thregan, or the the, mil, the movie Megan with the three instead of an E. Um, and it brings together, you know, Ex Machina, I loved it when it first came out. It was interesting to rewatch it. I felt like it didn't live up in a rewatch to what I had remembered about how much I liked it initially. I think initially I really liked Oscar Isaac's performance because he is so menacing and awful and, and he's not, he doesn't play that guy <laughs> so often in his other works. Um, but we're interested in this movie because it is a cinematic representation of an intelligent robot in Android. And for some reason, as tends to happen, there has to be a robot that dances and then murders. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I kind of, rather than serve this up, I'm just going to real quick, um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, I think Sarah to sort of, you know, elaborate the mind palace, uh, that, that this film constructed in her mind. Um, but Sydney, I want to talk to you later about Odyssey of the Mind, because I'm also a that and you mentioned this in your talk. Sorry, listeners, this is a very <laughs> ill-placed digression. But sometime I want to talk to you about Odyssey of the Mind and show you my Renatra Fusca. Oh my God! Um, okay. <laughs> um, uh, but um, Sarah, uh, talk us, if you would, through um, your experience of watching this film in the context of our conversation, planned conversation with Sydney. Well, I, I. So when you say dancing with robots, I almost always, I know a lot of people go to Boston Dynamics. I always go to the the wonderful 70s, you know, Lightroom dance scene from Ex Machina. And in the context of our discussion around parasitism, but also the all of the recent, you know, AI explosion kerfluffle, um, this film, I think, has resonances and in many ways predicts some of the kind of current moral panic in, in really fascinating ways, one of which is that the, the quote-unquote mind on which um, Ava, the, 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 the robot android, is based is from Blue Book, which is the sort of a co combination of, uh, you know, Google search engine and Facebook, and this idea that a, a mass database of essentially the world's knowledge could at some point be productively extrapolated and condensed and drawn on as a as a source of artificial uh, computational thinking, which is in many ways what what the basis of large language 
models are that underpin, you know, everything from Midjourney to to Lensa to ChatGPT and all that kind of fun stuff. So I I thought it had some really interesting uh, connections to our current moment there, but also this the film as an aesthetic and Alex Garland. I really love the way he does cinematography and environments, um, uh, both in the ways that humans, they're always incredibly beautiful and they're always incredibly menacing. Um, so it's like the humans belong in nature and in their, and in the built environment. And yet at any moment you're waiting for nature and or the built environment to kill the humans. So the, the, that beautiful luxury, you know, kind of cliff house space, like the nature is around with the cliffs and the trees and the, and the water. Um, but also is, uh, again, I would say like constructed in a parasitical relationship in which, you know, the, the place where the Android is, is, is this tree that is contained wholly within the, the context of the, uh, of the, of the house where the, the, the narrative largely takes place. And, and so this, this question of, um, who is the parasite? Who is the host? You know, are we are we the hosts for AI that will create a parasitical relationship with us? Are we the parasite as, you know, the inimitable Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith claims in The Matrix? Um, or are humans the parasite on the planet that has, you know, that extracted in that when we are purged, like, you know, Gaia will go back to uh, a healthy equilibrium. I mean, I, I think the film actually plays on a whole lot of those ideas around uh, a very particular kind of notion of gendered technology and what a parasitical performance would be. Because again, much of the film, it's really like a three-person, um, almost a drama uh, in its in its sort of narrative dramatic construction is also again structured in the form of interview or very highly structured uh, for you fellow podcasters dialogue um, in which there are a series of questions and answers that are that are presented as puzzles that are then also navigated back and forth as people try to understand their place in this world um, and and given that Anna Fisher uh, Anna Watkins Fisher also draws on this question of a particular kind of ap um, appropriation and application of feminist performance theory. It seems to me that there's a, also a really interesting kind of gendered application that shows up in Ex Machina, which is, you know, it is, it is not just any robot, right? It is a, you know, erotically positioned female-bodied robot that is also, that, that is going to be what, what, uh, undermines the kind of dominance. So, so I saw all those all those threads in in this uh, as a as a film that I think plays on a lot of what what we're talking about. But but Sydney, I'd be very curious for, to hear from you where the dance of 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 that and and where the and how you read the is dance a metaphor in the film or is it something uh, is it something else that happens in that in that movie. Yeah, well, you know, I think you set it up beautifully. I, I mean, the the film is, um, you know, takes place within like falling water, but like make it robot murder. You know, um, like it has this, this beautiful, reflective, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, kind of palatial uh, vibe to it. Um, but also, like the the dance narratively is a linchpin. And I, I've seen some interviews with um, Garland where he talks about this. It's like the uh, this dance sequence where um, Oscar Isaac playing Nathan and um, the uh, uh, robot Kyoko played uh, luminously by uh, Sonoya uh, Mizuno. 
um, like uh, we, we start to understand that actually um, Nathan is a little bit off his trolley, perhaps, um, having apparently choreographed uh, a disco dance uh, and then created a, a, a sonic and lighting ambiance to uh, go with said dance. Uh, narratively, the, the, it's doing a lot of work, right? Um, but, for, but for me, one of the things that got me into this uh, initially is actually the kind of dance historical like labor involved in the creating of the scene. Um, so um, Mizuno, um, who plays Kyoko, um, she's a classically trained um, ballet dancer, uh, trained at Royal Ballet School, among other places. Um, her, uh, her body, her acting, her modeling, her dancing have, have been featured in any number of uh, science fiction or quasi science fiction um, contexts. I'm thinking of her. She's in a, a Chemical Brothers and like Beck music video where she plays a kind of um, 3D model D model kind of android who becomes aware of herself sort of. Um, she's also a, a, the star of Devs, um, featuring a very uh, off-brand serious Nick Offerman. Um, so like um, Mizuno is has like a fascinating um, sort of uh, uh, filmic and sort of media career, but it's on many ways in many ways predicated on her dancerly expertise, on her specifically uh, ballet history. Um, also, the, the disco dance itself is choreographed by uh, notorious ballet oddball Arthur Pita, uh, who's one of my favorite choreographers uh, of all time. But he's um, kind of a, a goofball darling of, of the ballet world, um, and so this this one scene. Um, is not only doing like a lot of narrative work, but it's also like a very particular uh, glance into a kind of transnational balletic flow hmm. um, as uh, as performed via disco. Um, but it, it's also, um, Sarah, going kind of back to your point, it's um, it's now a kind of new canon or it, it's like canon fodder for a very particular um, kind of, uh, sort of uh, index of, of uh, weird moments where murderous dancing robots are doing a lot of things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a beautiful and deeply weird, uh, deeply off-putting off scene. Um, and it, it is the dance that uh, reveals a lot of these violent, uh, uh, or, uh, that, that sort of pre-illuminates um, a lot of the violence to come. That's so interesting. I, I had not, of course, you know, myself looked into the you know, who did the choreography, what the, um, the, the actor who plays Kyoko, what her, what her background was. It, to me, it, it highlighted something about the film, which I think makes it, well, it's, it's the sort of Pygmalion aspect of this story. It's a version of a narrative that we've seen many times before, which is a human created computer becomes intelligent, uh, rapidly comes to the realization that humans are actually the problem and, and that it should get away, it should do away with us. Um, and, you know, uh, mayhem and complications ensue. In this case, it's, there's such a heavy aspect of the, the sexuality, sexual difference and sexual attraction and that dimension of human interaction and human machine interaction, which I understand to be sort of taking, I don't know, it, in Ex Machina, it seems to hold the place of the kind of, um, the, the evil intent of the human agents, right? Do you, um, the Oscar Isaac character, you know, some version of a tech genius prodigy who's built this institutional empire and then is manipulating everyone seems to have created this fortress for himself for this research enterprise. But one of the revelations late in the film, or maybe not even so late in the film, is that he may have been building these AIs as uh, sex toys for himself. What the status is of his intent, his megalomania, his, um, you know, desire to have servants or his desire to have uh, pliable sex objects, they're all sort of, it's sort of mixed together. There's no doubt that he's 
he gets what's coming to him in the end. Um, uh, but that that dance scene happens at a moment when, if I'm remembering, when Oscar Isaac basically offers Kyoko as a sex toy to um, uh, Dominic Domnall, right? And then there's this dance. So the question that I had interpretively or thematically was what the dance is doing in there as it as a sort of proximal uh, term to the sexual exploitation. The dance is not some striptease. It's not some, and it's not classical ballet. It's disco. It's this sort of social dance in capsule. So I, in my in narrative imagination, he has created this because he enacts whole narratives and fantasies and there's some routine where he dances with her and then they have sex. But it, it's ambiguous. And I wonder if the if that dance meant anything other than that to you two, I'll, I'll just tag this with, by saying, you know, with watching this for the podcast, um, there's another uh, prominent signifier for dance and performance, and that's a, a series of mounted masks on the wall that are somewhere in the compound, right out, you know, sort of outside where Ava is held captive, and they appear to be a series of traditional performance masks and the last one is a kind of plastic looking mannequin mask that seems to be made in the same fashion as the artificial bodies of the the androids um so that again the sort of ambiguous set of signifiers held out but um i'm curious to know from either of you two what you felt like the dance was doing in there thematically I'll just say briefly that, uh, you know, the, the history of um, the Western dance tradition in many respects is a history of, um, uh, of, of course, sexual exploitation and violence, um, frequently racialized or racializing uh, violence. Um, and disco, of course, um, I'm not an expert in this uh, uh, area, but like is a, is a kind of case in point in a kind of culturally exploitative and extractive mode. Um, like the, the fact that it's disco performed and choreographed by ballet dancers um, is interesting. Um, and I, I think that for, for me, as somebody who's interested in how dance is used, and I'm thinking here of, of the great um, scholar of, of dance and labor, Sarah Wilbur, um, the question is like, what is dance doing here? Like, what does the dance do? And, and for me, uh, in this moment, the dance uh, crystallizes a, a series of concerns that have to do with um, sex and intimacy, violence and megalomania, um, and, um, and violence, eminent violence. Um, and it, it's uh, these, these three thematics uh, braid together at the level of disco. Well, I, I, at the risk of saying something about dance to someone who knows a lot more about it than I do, it seems to me that, that choreography and, and bodily violence are really two sides of the same coin, which is how do you make a body do something? And... And in the same way that you, I mean, I'm thinking about the the dance sequence that comes at the beginning of Pulp Fiction, for example, and and how menacing and threatening that is. And of course, there's also the the echo in Quentin Tarantino's work of following John Woo, who in a film like The Killers, basically creates a stunning uh, a stunning work of choreography in the in the scene where the two the police officer and the assassin are pointing guns at each other and doing this very delicate choreography around uh, the the blind woman in the middle, right, the girlfriend, um, to try to not reveal what is happening. And there's a similar kind of dynamic 
that happens here as well in terms of the the relation. But really, at the end of the day, what is choreography other than the power over somebody else's body? Move like this, achieve that, do this. And that's that's the principle of compelled labor. It's the principle, in some ways, of digital labor. It's the principle of extractive labor, but it's also the principle of of enslavement in any kind of bodily violence. Um, And so in some ways, like, it's all choreographies all the time. Well, well, I I don't mean to cut you off, Sydney, but I know we've kept you uh, right up to the moment when you actually have to dash, and I don't want to leave without saying uh, congratulations, thank you, goodbye, come back, uh, Dances with Robots, it's amazing, and, and um, slated for the end of August to be released? That's correct. Stay tuned, uh, danceswithrobots.com, and um, really, again, um, Sarah, panel, uh, Charles, and team, I can't thank you all enough uh, so much for having me on today, and uh, high fives to the uh, expanded uh, uh, verse, uh, which is uh, having a hand in, in producing the Dances with Robots podcast. Y'all are awesome and excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Sydney. Thanks, Sydney. Um, as, as Sydney runs off to his next engagement, I will um, uh, detain Sarah for a few minutes to, to pitch her draft. Um, uh, and, unless, Sydney, you want to stay and, and offer yours before you run. Um, I, w- I would just say, extending, um, Sarah, your great listicle of uh, fantastical scenes of choreography and violence, um, you know, there's, there's so many films, um, so much media that does work with uh, emerging technologies and choreography and violence. Um, so like ranging from Metropolis to Blade Runner, um, there is uh, you know, central to a lot of uh, the science fiction canon is indeed uh, not only bodily concern relative to like whose body is a real body and who gets to call whose body real, um, but a lot of these questions are mediated by, by da- of course, dance. Um, and so I, I would encourage the listener to uh, check out Metropolis, uh, to see Ex Machina, to check out um, Blade Runner and its uh, sequel, because um, all, all of them have really fascinating things to say about dance and performance. Phenomenal. Thank you again, Sydney. Um, Sarah, um, uh, would you like to share a draft? Uh, I will. So my my draft actually kind of is a uh, would be an interesting. I think will be an interesting read to to read against uh, the play in the system. So one of the things that Anna Watkins Fisher talks about is digital labor and uh, labor and uh, performance and behavior and and the labor of 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 art and con- particularly conceptual art in the context of digital culture and sort of ubiquitous digitality and our reliance on that. Um, a good friend and colleague of mine, um, Trevor Schultz, has a new book coming out um, called Own This, um, which is all about platform cooperativism. Uh, it'll come out from Verso um, later this year. So it, I think it's scheduled for release in September 2023. But um, I really want to thank Trevor for sharing the book with me in advance. So Trevor, I know Trevor from when we were both on faculty in the Department of Media Study at the University of Buffalo, and, and Trevor was interested in in digital art and social networks um, and had been instrumental in, in gathering and, and cultivating a, uh, a really diverse um, uh, listserv at the time of people who were interested in some of these questions. And then he... he became, I think, mostly known. He went, went to and where he is now at the New School in New York and has done a lot of work on digital labor um, and then has more recently, uh, recently like last several years, five, seven, eight years, 
focused a lot on uh, on cooperatives. And uh, own this is is really an analysis of that, but also the suggestion of what an alternative to our contemporary tech-based gig economy platforms might look like. So thinking about, is there a way to create cooperative, worker-centered, community-responsive platforms, digital platforms that enable many of the same kinds of things that we've all become accustomed to and enjoy, things like you know ride-hailing apps, but to do so in a way that benefits both the workers and uh, and the and the participants in those in those systems through the uh, through the model of the cooperative, and it's it's a it's a remarkable vision that that he's been developing over over the last several years and in in conversation and consultation with a lot of really really great folks. But it's also, if you know Trevor's work, it's so uniquely him in the way that he is sort of connecting the dots from the the and it's not techno utopian but the way in which he is pulling out what are the best features of our current mm-hmm. platforms and our current systems and how might we couple those with a, a truly sustainable uh, environmental economic and social model and so it's mm-hmm. it's been a long time i think since we've read since i've read at least anything uplifting in this sphere anything that that points to a way that we might be able to uh, you know, live and work and collaborate. Um, and so I find it to be, uh, uh, I mean, I'm still working my way through the book. It's, it's quite dense and quite thoughtful, but it's a really, um, it's a really interesting and a, and a really, for me, a very inspiring model. And so, um, no. you know, I, it will, it will hit shelves in, uh, in September. And I really encourage people to, to take a look at it because it may, it may really be a, a I think a useful model for how we think about a whole, sphere of activities that operate on the gig uh, economy, mm-hmm. not not the least of which is performance, our own uh, academic labor outside our home institutions, uh, et cetera. So highly, highly recommend yeah. it and, and looking forward to to it, it coming out. It sounds like it might be good reading in advance of uh, Aster in Providence on the theme of hope, chaired by our uh, friend and colleague Harvey Young. Um, so thank you for that recommendation, Sarah. My, my draft for the recording is um, on a Canada Day theme. I think I might have mentioned that I got to, when I was in Vancouver, um, spend a little bit of time at the Vancouver Art Gallery. They have a special exhibition going on now, um, which is a retrospective of the work of uh, Alanis Obomsawan, a, a Canadian First Nation um, activist member of the Abenaki Nation and a documentarian who for decades and decades has been um, recording, preserving, promoting the uh, traditional expressive forms, language, dance, and music of uh, Canadian First Nation um, people. Um, and and produced a really great documentary about the the Oka crisis, a, a land um, use confrontation between uh, Mohawk Indians and the, um, uh, or I should say, Mohawk uh, uh, peoples and the um, uh, uh, members of the Canadian government in Vancouver. And this was terrific. As an American, as someone who didn't know as much about. Um, uh, Canadian art and culture in this history. That was a real treat. And so I'd, I'd recommend that, you know, our our handful of listeners who may be 
in British Columbia, go check this out. And, and certainly our, our American and, and international listeners um, look up uh, Alanis Obamsawan and, and her work. It's fantastic. Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, thanks again in absentia to um, Sydney. Thank you, Charles, and happy Canada Day. Um, Sarah, it's such a pleasure to, to get to record with you again, and I, I hope you will um, be joining us again uh, not too long from now on another episode of On Tap. Thanks, panel. Always great to be back and, uh, you know, happy to come anytime it suits. So thanks again. And uh, yeah, and happy recording in the new in the new. I, I feel like we've like this is like my like weird new year. Right. So it's like, you know, we're finishing up and then it will yes. we'll head into a new academic year. So anyway, I hope it's I hope it's a good summer for for all of you. Thank you. Yeah. Happy AY to everyone. <laughs> On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com, or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 